I am so used to playing the drums. <laughs> and when I was walking up here, I almost got up on the stage over here in the back corner. <laughs> That's not a good place to preach from. That's weird. Uh, as you probably are aware, uh, we've started a series last week called Asking for a Friend, and there were some questions that were gathered from the congregation and, um, and some of the uh, other places as well as we kind of put together this series um, with Jacob and Alex. And, uh, you know, um, I said, the one I want to do is how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop. Now, some of you are familiar with that, the ones who laughed. <laughs> the other ones are like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, that goes back to an 80s commercial, so I apologize. But the answer to that question is the world may never know. So, <laughs> um, But in all seriousness, um, we, we actually had a, a Zoom meeting not too long ago, and we were, we were divvying up the questions of who is going to preach on what. And I said, I'll take the one on government. And Alex, uh, you need to take this one on sexuality, I think. <laughs> and I said, what? Um, I want to do the one on government. And he said, no, I think the Spirit's leading me to say that you need to do the one on sexuality. <laughs> no, that's not how it went down, but, you know, that's how I remember it. <laughs> So we have a tough question today, you know, um, and we start with the question. I mean, I, I didn't want to be somewhat deceptive in any way. I mean, this was the actual question we received. So I'm going to start with it, but I, I'm going to do my best to encompass a lot more and talk a lot more than just this particular issue, because it's much broader than just this issue. Now, this may be our current cultural hot button issue, um, but still, um, it's much broader than this. And so when we ask the question, I think it's up here on the screen for us here, is if homosexuality is so sinful, then why, God, why did God create me this way? Or why did he create me this way? And the next picture here, um, cart before the horse, you know, I think that's what the question is actually doing. So we're going to dispose of the question at this moment. We'll, we'll return back to it later. But I really think it kind of puts the cart before the horse. And so what we really need to do is ask, what is God's design for human sexuality as a whole? You know, why, why focus in on this one particular question or one particular issue? Um, and so that's what I want to do. I want to lay out here from the scripture, starting in Genesis 1 and also Genesis 2, and describe to us what God's intended plan was from the beginning. And then we can discuss and answer that question in a, uh, a better, fuller way, I think. <clears throat> so if you wish, you can pull out your Bibles, your, uh, your phones, wherever you have Scripture. But I'm also going to have it on the uh, screen up here. And we start in Genesis 1, uh, verses 27 to 28. <clears throat> and a good way, before we actually read through this, the good way to actually summarize God's plan for human sexuality is can be encompassed with one word and that's union all right now there's different facets to this idea of union and we're going to cover those as we go along but before we start doing that let's take a look at the passages here that i want to focus on <clears throat> they're starting in genesis 1 27 to 28 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then on the uh, next slide, we have Genesis 2.18. So we'll skip down to chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then later on, uh, down in verses 22 to 24 of the same chapter, it goes on to say, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last, or this at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. So there's the passage. Um, and there are some points we can take from these uh, several passages in Genesis 1 and 2 that I want to highlight. There's like five or six of them. The first one is going to be there in Genesis 1, 27 to 28. Uh, the highlighted uh, one is the idea of God creating them, that is man, mankind, male and female. Okay. God created male and female. So God's design for human sexuality is a union of male and female. That's how God designed it. That's how he created from the very beginning. And so there are only two sexes. Okay. Now, I know that's very controversial in our day and age. Um, this whole idea of gender and having like 72. I don't know. I can't really keep up with it. There may be more than that now, they say. But as we see in Scripture, from the very beginning, there are only two. Uh, and there's no such thing as really, in a real sense, gender, which um, even actually our cultural people will say, um, say gender is actually a social construct. So um, there are really only two sexes, okay? And that's what I like to refer to them as because I think it's more accurate, male and female. So marriage was designed by God from creation, from the very, very beginning, when he created uh, humankind, he had this intent. He had this particular blueprint in mind, this design, uh, a union of male and female. And we, and we can see this even more indicated throughout the passage that we read. For example, indicated by the command of God to reproduce. We'll say more on that a little bit later. And it's also indicated by the reason given for the man leaving his father and his mother. That is specifically to be joined to his wife. Now, there's a lot to be said here, but we're going to go on and we're going to highlight the next thing. We just want to lay out God's design. So God's design for human sexuality is union. But the second point that we want to make or highlight is uh, notice there that in Genesis 2:18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And the text goes on, which we'll cover a little bit more later. But here's the second point. God's design for human sexuality is a complementary union of male and female. Now, what does complementary mean? Now, that's just a big fancy word to say complete or to complement. That is, you have one half and another half. You put them together, you've got basically a whole. Uh, another way to think of this is that um, there are 
some things that I excel at that my wife does not. There are some things my wife excels at that I do not, and so we complement each other. When we come together, we can help each other uh, with strengths where the other is weak. God said also there that man needed a helper suitable for him. This is a complementary idea. When we need someone to help us out, we need somebody who has strengths that we may not have. We need someone who may have something intrinsically that we do not have. So complementary union here is certainly biological, okay? But it's much more than that. It's much more than biological. It has to do with strengths and weaknesses that we carry into a relationship of marriage. Now, let's move on here to the next point. Um, and it's highlighted here with the phrase uh, where God commands them, that is both uh, the male and female, to be fruitful and multiply. So the third point is this. God's design for human sexuality is a sexual complementary union of male and female. And we can see this very clearly from the command, be fruitful and multiply. And we know biologically, scientifically, even apart from the Bible and theologically and even philosophically, that this is possible only by sexual union between a biological male and female. Now, this should go without saying, and in, in, in the past, historically, this was something, I think, quite obvious. But uh, today, that's not as obvious um, for one reason or another. And what we need to understand is that biologically, uh, females have their own reproductive system, uh, which are meant to be one half of creating a human being, if you will. And the male has a certain reproductive system to create the other half, to bring the two together and you create a new life. So being fruitful and multiplying is um, meant to be a sexual union between male and female, biological male and female. We can see that by design, the design itself, the reproductive systems of the male and female. They were meant, intended by God to come together and reproduce. What's the next point? Let's move on a little bit. In Genesis 2, 22 to 24, no, no, notice the uh, highlighted section. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's the next point. God's design for human sexuality is an exclusive sexual complementary union of male and female. Notice how we're sort of building upon this idea of union and adding all these adjectives onto it. Here we know it has to be an exclusive uh, relationship that is not multiple wives or multiple husbands because of the idea that it says that the man shall leave his father and mother and be held fast to his wife. Singular, not multiple wives. It's not plural. This is also indicated by the idea of one flesh. God intended for when male and female come together, husband and wife, that they shall become one flesh. Now, there's, there's a lot more entailed in the idea of one flesh than just a physical aspect to it, but I'll, I'll uh, comment on that a little bit more later as well. Um, we also see that this is to be an exclusive union from other passages. For example, if we go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 says this, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Okay, it doesn't say he should have his wives. It says his own wife. And each woman her own husband. Not husbands, but own husband. Uh, also, 1 Timothy 3, 2, where it starts to list out um, different qualifications for eldership and leadership in the church, we see that Paul actually instructs that such a person should be a husband 
of one wife. Now, interesting enough, in the original language there, it actually means a one-woman man. That's what it literally states. And so this whole concept that we are to have an exclusive union, that God's intended design for marriage is to be an exclusive union, follows throughout the entire uh, Bible. Now, of course, one of the things that inevitably arises is the question of, okay, what about some of these Old Testament guys, you know? Abraham, he had multiple wives. You know, David had multiple wives. <laughs> oh, my goodness, look at Solomon, <laughs> right? Well, they were not following God's design, all right? Deuteronomy 17, 17 specifically talks about how um, they should not have more than one wife, okay? So just because something is mentioned in the text doesn't mean it's being prescribed. That is, that it's okay or permissible or something you can do. Rather, it's a telling of a history of what happened, not what ought to happen. So that's something we got to keep in mind. <clears throat> um, my MDiv advisor, um, back when I was in seminary, his name is Jack Cottrell, um, he has some books out on some of these ethical issues. They're really small and they're kind of dated now. Uh, he never updated them, but they were back from the 80s. But he has a good way of uh, stating this idea of the uh, marriage union being exclusive. And um, he says, the intrusion of a third party necessarily destroys the wholeness of oneness formed by the joining of one man with one woman. Uh, God's design was one man, one woman. When you bring a third party in, it breaks that covenant. A covenant is made between two parties, not three, four, or five parties. Okay, And so there is an intrusion here, and it necessarily destroys that covenant. All right, let's move on to the next point here. Uh, God's design for human sexuality also we'll see as uh, highlighted in the next phrase of Genesis 2:24, and it says, they shall become one flesh. So here's the basic um, point. <clears throat> God's design for human sexuality is not just an exclusive sexual complementary union, but it is a total union of male and female. What do we mean by total union? Well, I think it's illustrated here by the phrase one flesh. Obviously, this is a biological thing, um, and I don't think I have to get into the details of what that refers to, but uh, there's also the concept of the idea of a spiritual union, right? Uh, this is the idea of a mutual commitment to share your beliefs, to share uh, desires and hopes, uh, fears, plans, joys, sorrows, feelings, weaknesses, and strengths. And I think this is one reason why we get um, some good, clear indication in the New Testament, for example, and even in the Old Testament, that those of faith should be joining themselves, being, be married to those who are also of like faith, because it's supposed to be one flesh. It's supposed to be a union, and you cannot have union between a believer and an unbeliever. You're going to have a disparity of what we would call worldviews. They're going to be constantly clashing. Um, how are you going to raise your children? What are you going to do on Sunday? How are you going to serve the people around you? What does that look like? It's entirely different from, for a believer than it is for an unbeliever. So um, the final point is this, before we get into some application, <clears throat> And that is God's design for human sexuality is an exclusive, sexual, complementary, total, covenantal union of male and female. Now, that's a mouthful, but we've been adding it on here so we can get every single point. And this idea of covenant is in Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6. Now, what's interesting here is this is Jesus speaking with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. 
And we're going to get sort of two birds with one stone here in what Jesus is uh, teaching us, okay? But, so let's just read the whole, the whole passage of verses 3 to 6. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason or any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? And here's our point uh, specifically. So they are no longer two but one flesh, but therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. See, that's the design. That's the intended plan. Okay, now that's all we're doing right now. I know maybe there are questions popping up into your head, and probably inevitably so, and some good questions, but we'll, we'll figure some of that out in just a few minutes. But what we want to do is just lay out God's plan. And the idea here that I want to focus on that Jesus says is they shall not be separated. This is the idea of covenant. There is a promise made in your wedding ceremony that you will be joined to your wife or your husband until death do you part. That's the intent. That's the design God planned from the very beginning, that they shall be one flesh and no one should be separated. Uh, and, and so this is a covenant. This is a promise. This is an exclusive covenant and all those other adjectives that we looked at. <clears throat> so a covenant is a promise of mutual commitment for life. They are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. So as we summarize then God's design for human sexuality, we see the following. It's exclusive. It's an exclusive union. It's a sexual union. It's a complementary union. It's a total union. It's a covenantal union. Yes, a union, bringing it together, male and female. So now, see the picture coming up? Now we got the horse before the cart, so that's, <laughs> that's what we want, right? We need to know what is it that God wants before now we can ask the question, is homosexu if homosexuality is so sinful, then why did God create me this way? Now, what I want to do is add other questions to that, because it's not just about that question, is it? Next question we could ask, if transgenderism is so sinful, then why did he create me this way? Or, you know, add on to another question. If pornography is so sinful, then why did he give me such a desire for it? Isn't this natural? Or, if polygamy is so sinful, then why did he create me to want more than one wife or want to commit adultery and have an affair? If sex before marriage is sinful, then why did God create me with this desire? Or, if divorce is wrong, then why did he make marriage so difficult? <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be a blessing, Lord. What's going on here? I jest. I, I seriously, I jest. Oh, great. I'm just going to move on. <laughs> Before I dig that hole anymore. So here are all the questions. And I think there's something all in common, right? Let's, the highlighted part is what's in common. Um. Why did he create me this way? Why did God create me this way? Well, let's look at this. Um, next slide for us here. On the left side here, God's design, right? We looked at this already. But then on the next slide, um, we see a conflict, okay? 
God's design is exclusive, sexual, complementary, total, covenantal union of male and female. But our desires are what? Adultery, polygamy, distorted sex, porn, uncooperative, autonomous, partial, divorce, fornication, porn, disunion, homosexuality, transgenderism, so on and so forth. We could add a lot more to that list, right? So obviously there's a conflict here. And before we dive a little bit more into this, I do want to point something out. And it's on the next slide for us. No one escapes that column. Okay? What do I mean by that? All of us in this room, in one shape, form, or another, have at least one of those desires played out in our lives. Okay? Whether we've done it externally through action or we've done it in our hearts. Okay? Now, maybe you don't have an issue struggling with some sort of sexuality, if you will. But if you ever had any kind of disunion in your marriage, and I think all of us could say, yes, we've done that and to some extent. If you had one fight at all and it was a throwdown, <laughs> you've had some disunion in your marriage. All right. And that goes against God's plan. That goes against God's design. No one escapes that column, all right? And we know this is the truth because of what Jesus taught us. Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it's not just about, wow, look, I followed this commandment. I've been faithful to my wife. Really? What have you done inside your mind? What have you done inside your heart? Jesus tells us if we are looking at porn, if we have looked at another woman with lust or like, wow, I want to be like to be married to that woman or husband. Guess what? You're in that column. That's that's your desire, not God's design. He goes on to say um, in that same passage, Actually, in Mark 7, 18 to 23, he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? This is Jesus speaking. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, Fornication, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, which also includes sexual immorality there as well. Envy, slander, pride and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So as we see here, then God's design on the one hand, on the, in the left hand column do not coincide with our desires in the right-hand column, right? So here's the question. What happened? Why do our desires not match God's design? For a lot of us um, who have been Christians for some time, I think the answer comes easy, although the way it plays out is very complex. And it's just one three-letter word, and it's sin, now, sin is a tricky thing here <clears throat> because, at least in our culture, because we don't take it seriously. We don't understand the gravity. 
of it. We don't understand how far it reaches into our very souls. We don't understand how much it permeates everything. My friend Rich Hoyer just came out with a book recently that's entitled, So You uh, Think You Understand Christianity. And in the chapter on sin, he has two subtitles that I think are fantastic, and it illustrates well what I'm trying to convey here. It says, sin, our greatly underestimated problem, and also sin, the neglected epidemic. You see, sin affects everything. It permeates everything. It distorts our nature, who we are as human beings. It distorts our desires and our passions. It distorts our perception of reality a lot of times. It distorts our decisions. It distorts our logic. It distorts everything and including our sexuality. That's why our desires don't always line up with God's plan. Romans 5, 15 and 19, Paul talks about how detrimental sin is. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. From one sin came the judgment resulting in condemnation. By the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. Through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. This is the idea of our nature being corrupted in some sense, shape, or form. Now, there's a theological dispute exactly how to define that and the extent of it and all that. That's not the point, because we can at least all agree that we don't come into this world as pure and wonderful and I'm awesome, right? <laughs> you don't have to teach your child um, uh, how to lie, right? You don't have to teach your child how to say no. I still remember uh, my first child, Samantha. Sorry, I'm going to use you as an illustration. Um, <clears throat> we didn't have to teach her how to say no, okay? We had to teach her how to say yes, <laughs> And be obedient, right? We come into this world with some kind of corrupted nature. And it's not just our spiritual nature, it's our physical nature, which then distorts our desires and our passions. This is what we typically call the doctrine of original sin. You know, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 say this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. And those inclinations are strong a lot of times, aren't they? And our thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, excuse me, as the others were. Also, so when we ask this question, all these questions, it's on the next slide here for us. Why did God create me this way? Right. And you can plug in any kind of question you want to and use that same phrase. Here's the answer. And this is going to step on all of our toes. God did not make you that way. He just didn't. The corruption of sin made you that way. And that kind of sin could be original sin, like we just read about. 
It could be personal sinful choices. But Adam and Eve's sin, the fall, also brought in corruption to everything. So it could be dysfunctional environments that we find ourselves in that we're born into. Dysfunctional families and sinfulness and, and decisions that they've made. Sinful cultures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You see, sin has corrupted and distorted everything. Everything. There's not one thing in this universe that sin has not touched. So God created with a design and a plan. But because of sin, we now have distorted desires. Now, the inevitable question that pops up is, but wasn't I born this way? Well, perhaps, right? Especially in light of what we would call the doctrine of original sin that we saw. Now, it's not substantiated by current science. I know you could Google it and you'll find all sorts of articles that says it is. But those aren't scientific journal articles. And so there's no substance for that. But even if someday science were to find some sort of evidence that someone is born biologically that way, that shouldn't shock us and surprise us. Why? Because sin corrupts our very natures. Sin corrupts and distorts everything. So we should expect to be born with some sort of sexual desire that's distorted. And it's not just homosexuality. It's not just transgenderism. The only, why, the only reason why this is so highlighted today is because our culture has brought it up as a question and an issue. When I lived back in the 80s, when I was growing up, the big issue then that culture was bringing up was premarital sex and living, in, uh, living with somebody before you got married. That was the big hot-button issue. And Christians were seen as passe and you know, all that sort of a thing, and getting hurled insults at because of their stance on marriage and all that sort of a thing, and not having sex before marriage. That was seen as prudish and all that sort of a thing. Today, it just happens to be a different topic. But as we see, we're all in this same boat. All of our passions, all of our desires have been distorted to some extent. Now, I may not struggle with homosexuality or something like that, but I certainly struggle with some other sexual aspect of marriage, we're all sinners. We're all in that category. So we should expect that we're born that way. We should expect people to be born with an inclination. Remember, that's actually borrowing from Paul there in Ephesians 2. We should at least be expected to be born with a strong inclination, for example, to alcoholism even. Some people, not everybody necessarily. People struggle with different sins. We should expect it. But here's the thing, <clears throat> to answer directly the question, God didn't make you that way. And yes, maybe you were born that way, but it was because of sin, not because God designed it and created you that way. But there is hope. There is hope. I like um, what Paul writes to the Romans at the end of that letter. It encapsulates several points that I want to highlight for us in regard to hope. There, Paul writes, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Here's how I want to apply that to us. Notice that God is a God of hope. We may be wrestling and 
struggling with some sort of issue within our marriages, whatever it may be. But there is hope. God is a God of hope. But the only way to have that kind of hope through those struggles and ultimately to overcome those struggles is to have belief in Jesus Christ. Because that is when you will have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. You cannot overcome these struggles all on your own. I have not overcome struggles and sinful inclinations in my past on my own. I had to do it and rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit, and I still am, and I always will. That's where we can find, and these are the other highlighted phrases there, joy and peace. You see, sin brings unhappiness, sorrow, chaos, not peace. But when we are in Jesus Christ, no matter how hard the struggle is or how long it lasts, we can endure and persevere through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to leave you with a um, final story. Several years ago, I was teaching an ethics class and was dealing with this particular issue. And the student, um, just in class, and, I, and, I, and I'm still grateful for this, she came out and said, you know what, um, I have lesbian attractions. And she said, um, I feel like I was born this way. And I went through some of these things. And she said, I'm so glad that you said that um, I may have been born this way. Because she's like, I never remember a time that I wasn't attracted to other women. And she said, um, but here's the thing. She said, I kind of dabbled a little bit in that um, lifestyle. And what I decided to do was that I was just going to be um, abstaining from any kind of relationships my whole life. I was going to be abstinent, abstinence uh, from all of that and um, take a vow of celibacy because I don't know if I'm ever going to overcome this struggle. And she says, I can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, I'm still friends with her today. In fact, I just sold her a painting. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> You know, that's the kind of person that I really admire. I really respect. Um, someone who struggles so hard, um, but yet realizes, you know, this is, wasn't God's intended plan. But I'm going to do something about that, relying upon his power, not my own. Because she, she, she freely admitted, and when I tried to do it on my own, I couldn't do it. And she still struggles with it, you know. But it's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it may not just be that particular sexual issue within marriage that you deal with. It may be something else, maybe adultery, maybe being attracted to somebody outside your marriage. You don't have to give in to it. Just because you're born that way doesn't mean you have to live that way. We are all born sinners. We don't have to live like sinners. We can rely upon the Holy Spirit to give us power to overcome. Let's have a word of prayer. God in heaven, um, in our culture, this is such a heavy topic and subject and not a popular one at all. Um, 
In fact, I know some people who have gotten fired over stating these things from their jobs. Um, help us to remember that our, our identity is not in our sexual identity. Our identity is in Jesus. Our identity is not in our sexual sins that we've committed, whatever it may be. But our identity is in you. Help us keep our focus, our eyes on the glory to come. The struggles, the distorted passions and the sins that we face every single day. Whether it's in the front of our minds or in our subconscious. These these are just temporary. We can persevere. We can plug plug through, not on our own power, but by the power of your Spirit. Help us to do that, Lord. God, I'm not sure what else to pray right now, but I do feel such a strong sense of um, winning your spirit to comfort those who are struggling so bad right now. I want them to know whoever it is, whether they're here or not hearing me pray, um, that you don't hate them. Um, You don't want to throw them under the bus. Um, You just want to take them and mold them and shape them and redesign them. Just like you did me and are doing to me and all of us who are sinners. No matter who it is, what they're doing, what they're struggling with. God, that's what I ask you in your son's name. Amen.